Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 3. All right, and if you would like to stand for the reading of God's word. 2 Peter chapter 3 starts, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But his word, the present heaven and earth, are being preserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which heaven will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.
thinking that people really need to learn to stagger their vacations. But I'm grateful for all of you who are here. This morning we are going to begin Revelation chapter 14. We are going to read the entirety of the chapter and then we'll go back and start digging into the details. That bit of digging may take several weeks, but we'll read the whole chapter so that we have some idea how it fits together. Revelation chapter 14, starting at verse 1, And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and these have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth, they are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, 
put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Chapter 14, I contend, is a strange place to start a chapter because the first couple of verses of chapter 14 actually correlate to the end of chapter 13 and provide us with a tremendous contrast. Actually, this whole chapter provides us with several contrasts. And I don't just think that that was a literary device that John employed. I think he was doing this on purpose to show us the contrast between those who are in Christ and with Christ versus those who are still on the earth and falling under the wrath of God. Now, we're going to have to get relatively technical as we look at some of these details, but what I want to emphasize to you, and I will emphasize it for pretty much the whole rest of the book of Revelation, I'll emphasize that this, again, is a very Jewish book. And if you're talking about categories of people at this point in the book, there are the people who, at the end of chapter 13, have taken the mark of the beast, and they worship the statue of the beast. And the reason that they worship this idol is because the false prophet has convinced them that they should worship this idol, which then he gives breath to. The idol speaks, apparently, convincing people that this is something from God, something that they ought to bow down before. So there's that group of people who are willing to take the mark of the beast in their right hand to their forehead, without which they cannot buy or sell, so they have a monetary, sociological reason to want to take the mark, so that they can still do their business, still access their money, still feed their family. But then there's also a religious aspect to this, because the taking of the mark is a declaration that you now belong to the beast and are worshiping the beast. And in chapter 13, we were told that the beast is driven by Satan. So actually, this is worship of Satan here on planet Earth by all those who are still on the Earth, who John has identified as those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. Okay, there's that group. Then there's the group, the church, 
which has already been taken off the earth because the wrath of God is being poured out here. And consequently, the church just can't be here. The church will not suffer the wrath of God a second time because, number one, Christ already bore that wrath on our behalf. And number two, Paul clearly says that we, the church, are not ordained to the wrath of God. So there's that group of people. But then there's also the group of people who refuse to take the mark. Those people who refuse to take the mark of the beast and refuse to bow down and worship him lose their lives. And then there's this other group of people who are Jews who, following Jesus' own directive and command, have left Jerusalem when they saw the abomination of desolation. They've left Jerusalem and they've gone to Ammon and Edom and Moab. They're hiding out in the wilderness there. God is preserving and protecting them there. So there's also that group of people. Now, last week, I had a conversation with Micah about this very thing. How do we delineate these various different groups? And who are the people who are being converted during the tribulation? Because there are people apparently being converted to Christ during the tribulation as a result of the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who are out preaching Christ And apparently there are people who then recognize that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, their Messiah. If you would, Leon, since you're sitting right here, look up Zechariah 12.10 for just a moment. You're going to read that to us because that is an Old Testament declaration that when Jesus comes back and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, that God is going to pour out his spirit on the children of Israel so that they recognize Christ. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they, whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So that's an Old Testament prophecy of the conversion of Israel, and it happens corresponding with Christ returning and his feet touching the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives splits in half. And so this is clearly the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation in order to establish his kingdom. At that time, God is going to pour out the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of supplication, on people in Jerusalem. And they themselves are going to recognize who Jesus is, weep over him like a mother who weeps over her only child. And so they're going to repent. They're going to come to genuine faith in Christ. That was predicted in Zechariah. We're seeing the outgrowth of that here in Revelation. All those people who are not taking the mark, who are being killed, we have to assume are Jews who are still on the planet, Israelites still on the planet, who recognize that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, just like Zachariah said, and because they know the law of God, that there shouldn't be any other God before Yahweh, they are not worshiping the beast or his image, and they are choosing death. And so part of our conversation last week was, 
well then doesn't that mean that all the Jews who are believers are going to get killed? And the answer to that is found in Matthew 24 where Micah rightly pointed out that God is going to shorten those days or else no flesh would survive. So God is preserving the people of Israel who he has kept in the wilderness. Those are the people who are going to go into the kingdom as Christ establishes it. Christ comes back with a two-edged sword out of his mouth. He comes back with his rod of iron. He starts smashing the nations as he sets up his own kingdom. He becomes David's greater son on David's throne, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. The blessings of God flow out from Jerusalem out to the Gentile nations. We'll hear more about that as we continue through the book of Revelation. Have we sort of kind of got the people groups now? So you've got the Israelites who are being protected in the wilderness. You've got Israelites who are going to lose their lives as martyrs rather than bow down to the idol. You've got the church that's already gone, and you have the Gentiles on planet Earth whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and therefore they bow down and worship the beast. And ultimately, as we just read, they're going to suffer the wrath of God. Then we've got 144,000. Now, the 144,000 at the beginning of chapter 14 stand in direct contrast to the people at the end of chapter 13 who take the mark of the beast. And so they are part of the worshiping throng, the people of planet Earth who don't have the spirit of God, who God is going to turn over to a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie and they will be condemned we read about them in chapter 13, starting at verse 16, which says that the false prophet causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves. Who's that? That's everybody. John is going to pains here to say that everybody left on the planet at this point, small or great, whether you're insignificant or whether you're a mighty man on this earth, whether you're rich and well-to-do or whether you're completely impoverished, whether you're a free man, whether you're a slave, the false prophet says that everybody across the board has to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has that mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding, calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. That's what we discussed last week. In contrast to all the people of the earth who have the mark of the Antichrist, who have the mark of Satan himself in their right hand and in their forehead, chapter 14 starts with the contrast of 144,000 who have the name of their father, written on their foreheads. So there's one group that has the mark of the beast in their foreheads, and then there's the group that has the mark of God in their foreheads. So if you're on planet Earth during this time, you're wearing somebody on your forehead. You belong to somebody. You're either walking around with the mark of the beast or the 144,000 have the mark of God. Now, it would be real easy to read the first phrase and 
in so many of the commentaries that I've looked at and some of the preachers that I've listened to, I'm genuinely surprised how quickly people pass over the first phrase at the beginning of chapter 14, which says, and I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion. To us, 21st century Gentiles, that doesn't mean a great deal. To Jews who know their Old Testament, who are waiting for the kingdom, and who are anticipating their Messiah to come, that is one of the most significant signals they could possibly see. Because Old Testament prophecy says that just before the kingdom is established, God is going to stand on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is the hill where Jerusalem is. I told you a couple weeks ago, Jerusalem is surrounded by seven hills, seven mountains. And Mount Zion then becomes a nickname for Jerusalem. And here is the declaration from John that the Lamb of God, Christ himself, is going to be standing on Mount Zion. That statement alone is enough to make any Jew familiar with his scriptures say, wait, that is a significant moment in time and history because that proves the kingdom is coming because the Messiah is ruling from Zion. He's here. Here, I'll give you a few examples. Let's start by reading Psalm 48. Psalm 48, back in the Old Testament. Keep your finger there in Revelation. I'm going to read the whole psalm. Psalm 48 starts, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain. What is his holy mountain? Mount Zion. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the north, the city of the great king. I don't think at that point we're talking about, since this was written by the sons of Korah, I don't think they're talking about David where they say it's the city of the great king. I think this is messianically looking forward and establishing the fact that the Lord himself, the great king of the kingdom to come, is going to establish himself on Mount Zion. God is going to be in the palaces of Mount Zion. And he has made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings, that's the kings of the earth, assembled themselves. And they passed by together. And they saw it. And then they were amazed. And they were terrified. And they fled in alarm. Why? Because the great king is standing on Zion. Panic seized them there. Anguish. As a woman in childbirth, how often have we seen that phraseology? Jesus uses that language in Matthew when talking about the great tribulation to come. The book of Revelation uses that language. It's language that we find several places in the Old Testament to describe this time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again. Certainly Jeremiah uses this language. And so since so many other prophets have identified that period of time, as the great tribulation period when men are going to go about clutching their sides and being in pain like a woman in labor to give childbirth, 
this now establishes this psalm as also being prophetic to that period of time. And you will notice that that period of time, during the time of tribulation, just before the kingdom is set up, something significant happens, which is the Lord standing on Zion. Panic sees them there. Anguish, as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, thou dost break the ships of Tarshish. And as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Certainly Daniel has told us this, talking about the, the stone kingdom to come that crushes all the other portions of the statue that represent all the kingdoms before it. This language is that that kingdom is never going to be destroyed. All the other kingdoms of the earth, all the previous kings are all going to be destroyed, all going to be crushed, all going to be ground to powder because that rock coming down from heaven to establish his final kingdom is going to annihilate all the former kingdoms of the world so that only his kingdom stands and it's going to stand forever. The psalmists, the sons of Korah, agree that when Jesus stands on Zion, He's going to establish his kingdom. All the kings of the earth are going to be terrified as he's breaking them with his rod of iron. And that kingdom, once established, is going to last in the city of Jerusalem forever. Let's look at another example. Isaiah 24. I'm going to start reading at verse 21. Isaiah 24, starting at verse 21. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon, and they will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. And then the moon will be abashed, and the sun will be ashamed. How often have we seen this language? In Joel, Jesus picks it up in Matthew 24. We've seen it in the book of Revelation. The sun and the moon go dark. The stars will not give their light. The moon will be abashed. The sun will be ashamed. Why? Because the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Okay, so that's a couple prophecies now that we've seen in the Old Testament that Jesus is going to stand on Mount Zion. That significant moment in time is the promise of the kingdom to come. He is there to establish himself on David's throne. Joel 2 says the same thing. Joel 2, I'm going to start reading at verse 28. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because this is the portion of Joel that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost. Verse 29, even on the male and the female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Very much like what Leon read for us out of Zechariah, that God is going to pour out his spirit on Israel, and they are going to recognize Christ when he comes. Verse 30, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. 
The sun will be turned into darkness. Okay, here's these same celestial disturbances that we just saw from Isaiah. So we know he's talking about the same event, the same time period. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Perfect. Now we know when those events occur and when they occur, the next thing that happens is the day of the Lord, the punishment, the wrath of God. Verse 32, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Are you starting to see a pattern here? There are all these Old Testament prophecies talking about Mount Zion and the Lord on Mount Zion and the establishment of the kingdom that happens right after a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again that happens after the wrath of God and the day of the Lord and then Jesus stands on Mount Zion and the next thing that happens is the kingdom. The Old Testament prophets keep saying it. You can turn, by the way, to the book of Obadiah, one of the very minor prophets. Not just a minor prophet, but really minor. In fact, there's not even any chapters in the book of Obadiah. I'm going to start reading at verse 15 of Obadiah. And I'm going to stand here and watch how many of you look at the order of books in the front of your Bible to figure out what page Obadiah starts on. Obadiah says the same thing. He's describing the same stuff. Obadiah 15, for the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. Okay, that is God's wrath poured out on the nations, just like Jesus predicted, just like we've seen in the book of Revelation. For the day of the Lord draws near on all, on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head, because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their own possessions." Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph will be a flame. But the house of Esau, who's Esau? Jacob's brother. Yeah, the brother of Jacob. Okay, so who did the Esauites become? Yeah, they became the Muslim nations that surround Israel to this very day. Here's a prediction from Obadiah saying that the house of Jacob is going to become a fire, the house of Joseph is going to be a flame, but the house of Esau is going to be the stubble. So they're going to burn, and the nations that belong to God, the tribes of Israel, of Jacob, of Joseph, are going to be gathered to God. But first the house of Esau will be a stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau and those of the Shephelah in the Philistine plain. 
And they will also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. What's that describing? The regathering of the 12 tribes of Israel replanted back in their own land, just like all the prophets of the Old Testament predict. Verse 20, and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev, and the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So once again, the establishment of Jerusalem, the destruction of the surrounding nations, those nations that have always been enemies to Israel, those nations who to this very day are still planning to blow Israel off the map and force them into the sea. Those nations will be destroyed. God is going to bless, pour out his spirit on the children of Israel. The children of Israel are going to come to their Savior, to their Messiah, who is on Mount Zion. And as they gather on Mount Zion is the establishment of the kingdom, and the kingdom belongs to the Lord. Are you getting a feel for this yet? I'm not done. Turn to the book of Micah. If you can't find the book of Micah, just look right at Micah. And he'll just, he'll say some stuff. And Micah chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 8. And it will come about in the last days. Oh, good. Now we even know the time frame. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, which mountain is the mountain of the house of the Lord? Right, Zion. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the other hills and the peoples, the Gentiles, the Goyim will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Has that happened yet? I think we'd have to say no. We still live in a very war-obsessed world. And yet here is a prediction From the word of God, this has to happen. This has to come true. Here's the prediction that one day from Zion, that's where the word of the Lord is going to come. And the Goy, the Gentiles, the nations are going to stream to Jerusalem because they know that that's where they're going to hear the word of the Lord from. And then God is going to judge all the nations and all the peoples. Look at verse 3. He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And their reaction is going to be no more war 
as they hammer their swords into plowshares. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. By the way, that stands in direct contrast to Jesus in Matthew 24, which hopefully we'll get to this morning. Jesus in Matthew 24 says, in describing the birth pangs that are going to happen on this earth, says you're going to hear of wars and rumors of war, nation against nation, ethnos against ethnos, ethnic group against ethnic group. People are going to be warring against each other right up until Christ comes back with his two-edged sword and his rod of iron, and he establishes peace on the earth. Then the nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them, this is the kind of peace they're going to have, each of them, says verse 4, will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. Oh, that sounds like a good day. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Not just the mouth of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. The one who is the king of the inhabitants of the earth and the inhabitants of heaven. That king has already spoken. He has said it. Therefore, it is expected that you would believe it because it absolutely has to happen here on planet earth because the Lord of hosts said it. And what he said is he's going to lift up Mount Zion over all the other mountains, all the other kingdoms of this earth. All the other kings are going to come trembling to Mount Zion. That's where they're going to come to learn about the God of Israel. And he is going to teach them peace, and he's going to make peace for his own people, where they're able to just sit under their vine or under their fig tree without any fear of being attacked or being robbed or enemy armies coming against them. There's going to be peace on the earth because the Lord Almighty is reigning from Zion. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Verse 6, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, and I will gather the outcasts. I keep saying that every prophet in the Old Testament, they all speak with one voice, and they all predict this time where God is going to regather the children of Israel, the very people who he scattered, who he scattered out amongst the Gentiles. He's going to regather them and plant them permanently back in their own land, which was given to Abraham way back when as an unconditional covenant. Therefore, God has to keep his word and establish the 12 tribes tribes of Israel back in their land. Here's Micah saying he's going to do that. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. God sitting on his throne doing whatever he wants to do has afflicted Israel, has afflicted the Jews, has afflicted the northern and the southern kingdom, drove them out of their land drove them among the Gentiles, doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He's going to regather them, but he's not going to leave them in their lame affliction. Verse 7 says, I will make the lame a remnant. I will make the outcasts a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. 
Okay, so let's say that you're a, an Old Testament Jew. You're living in the time before Jesus. When you look at your watch, it still says BC. The, the BC AD change hasn't happened yet. And so you're, you're reading stuff like this. This is your scripture. And you're reading promises like that, that God is going to regather you as a people, establish you in your land, give you peace and prosperity, going to judge your enemies and the nations that have ever afflicted you. And once he has established you there in the land that he has promised to you ever since the Abrahamic covenant, he's then going to deliver the king that he has promised ever since the Davidic covenant. And when he does that, that king is going to reign on Mount Zion from now on and forever. So can you see where John sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion and goes, well, that's the whole rest of it then. This is the beginning of the kingdom. This is the establishment of the kingdom of Israel that's going to last forever. And how do I know that? Because the Lord Jesus is on Mount Zion. And that has been prophesied over and over and over again in the Old Testament. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Beautiful language. But notice also that it refers to the former dominion, meaning that God knows that once upon a time Israel was a great and mighty nation there in the Middle East. During the time of David, during the time of Solomon, kings, foreign kings, Gentile kings and queens would come to see the splendor and the wisdom of Solomon. Once upon a time, you could not mess with Israel. You couldn't mess with Jerusalem. They were a mighty nation. God promises them that as mighty as they ever were there in the Middle East, he's going to do it again. Even the former dominion is going to come. And that's going to be the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. So what I hope you saw through those several passages of the Old Testament is there is this promise that God Almighty, the Lord incarnate, is going to stand on Mount Zion. When he stands on Mount Zion, that is a sure guarantee, a sure demonstration that the kingdom is coming right behind it. And that's always the order that you see in the Old Testament prophets, that once God stands on Mount Zion, then the kingdom is established, the kingdom that's going to last forever and ever. But it happens after a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. It happens after the time of the day of the Lord. So that's the sequence. There's the time of the day of the Lord. There's the punishment of the wrath of God. Then Christ comes to the earth. His feet touch the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is right by Mount Zion. And then he's going to have his two-edged sword and his rod of iron. He's going to punish the Gentile nations that ever came up against Jerusalem. 
The kings of the earth are all going to flow to Jerusalem. That's where they're going to hear the word of God, where they're going to hear about the God of Israel. And Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, which is going to last forever and never end. And that kingdom belongs specifically to the daughter of Jerusalem. Did I say anything yet that the Bible didn't say? Nope. Well, then can you see why when a first century Jew gets the book of Revelation and reads, I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion, that that would just light up their memory. I go, wait, wait, wait. We have all this prophecy about the fact that Jesus is going to stand on Mount Zion. And here it is. John is seeing it. And everything we're going to read for the rest of the book of Revelation is going to run along the same course of what the Old Testament prophets have told us. And Jesus is going to begin establishing the kingdom now. We also read that the outcasts and the gathered and the remnant of Israel is going to be on Mount Zion with the Lord. So no surprise that the first group of them would be the 144,000. Now, by the way, this is the exact same 144,000 that we saw back in Revelation 7. The reason I know it's the exact same group of people is because back in Revelation 7, they got the mark in their forehead, the name of God in their forehead, and here they're described as having the name of the Father written in their forehead. So we're talking about the exact same group of people. Though they are not delineated here as particularly 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, we know it's the same group of people. And look at how significant that picture is. Here we see the first fruits of Israel standing on Mount Zion with their king at the beginning of the establishment of the kingdom that will never be destroyed. What an amazing image that is. With him were 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on harps. So it obviously was a sweet and melodic sound, but it was also really loud, just like thunder and just like the sound of many waters rushing. So obviously, John, having given us three examples here, is just trying so hard to describe what this voice is like. And I think the reason he's having a hard time describing it with earthly terminology is because it's an unearthly voice. He's hearing the voice of heavenly creatures speaking and describing things to him. A voice out of heaven, like the sound of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. How many elders are there? 24 elders. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures are before the throne of God, and that's where this song is being sung. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. 
Why are they the only people who get to learn that song? Because they're the only people who had that experience. You will also notice that the song is not written out for us. Why? Because then we would know it. And we're not allowed to know it. Only the 144,000 get to sing the content of that song to God himself. And then this 144,000 are described. Not only have they been purchased, that word can also be translated redeemed. They have been bought out from the earth by God. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Some of your translations will say because they are virgins. I, again, have heard so many and read so many people say that this must all be spiritual. Because in the Old Testament, when Israel chased foreign gods, God likened that to harlotry and said that Israel was his adulterous wife because Israel went chasing other gods. So based on that language of adultery and harlotry in the Old Testament, some folks say that this means, since they were chaste virgins, that he's referring to Israel or to the church or to those who are spiritually pure, those who are following after Christ and not following after other gods. There's no reason to spiritualize this text. The same way that they have the mark of God, the same way that they walked on the earth, the same way that they are evangelists to Israel is the same way that we understand that they are not defiled with women because they kept themselves as virgins. Here, I'll make it easy for you. What we're not told about them is how old they are. Okay, in the Old Testament, God, when he delivered Israel out of Egypt, killed everybody 20 and below during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And it was that second generation of young people who got to go into Israel. What if God is doing something similar with Israel here? And his first 144,000, who he's going to refer to as the first fruit, are young men? Then, yes, of course, they could all be virgins. Why not? So I don't see any purpose to over-spiritualizing this text. I haven't hyper-spiritualized anything else in the book of Revelation, so I'm not planning to start now. I think this description is simply an accurate description of who they are. They're just young men who follow Christ because God has poured out his spirit on them. They recognize who he is. They have the mark of God in their forehead. They are out evangelizing among Israel. And these are the ones who have not been defiled with women for they have kept themselves chaste. And these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been, again, redeemed or purchased from among men for a reason, for a purpose. It wasn't just a random choosing and a random purchase. They were particularly purchased to be the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. That's very significant language because if they are Israelites, if they are Jews, then yes, Yes, naturally, we could see they've got the law of God. They've got the covenants of God. Yes, okay, they would follow after God. Okay, suitable enough language. But here it says they follow after God and after Christ, after the Lamb, because they have been converted 
to Christ. And they are then, as Israelite converts to Christ, they are then referred to as the first fruits. What does that mean? It means there's going to be more. And that's why, over the course of the establishment of the kingdom, over the course of God wiping out the other nations and establishing Israel to live in peace, as we see all of these Old Testament promises and covenants finally coming to their fruition, those are all going to happen among Israel. But I have said for so many years standing here, people sometimes accuse us because of what we teach here, They'll accuse us of having two different ways of salvation. And they'll say, well, you're saying the church is saved through Jesus, but then Israel gets saved and gets a nation, gets a kingdom through some other means? That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying everything in the Bible is established and accomplished through Christ. It's always through Christ. So naturally, the kingdom promised by God in the Old Testament cannot happen except through Christ, which is why we're told in the New Testament that in him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. When Christ was here, he didn't do away with any of the promises of God. Instead, what he did was establish the promises of God and say, they're going to happen through me. So naturally, all these promises of the Davidic covenant, all these promises of land and the Abrahamic covenant, all these promises of the regathering of Israel and the establishment of a kingdom and a time of peace and destruction of all their enemies, of course that all has to happen, and it's all going to happen through Christ. And so the first thing that happens is that this 144,000 is redeemed from the earth as a first fruit of Israel, and they are established in Christ. So we are not teaching two ways of salvation. Salvation is always through Christ. But so is every other promise in the Bible. Everything you find in the Bible that is a promise from God is satisfied by, is established by Jesus Christ. And that's why this 144,000 who are purchased from men as first fruits to God are also first fruits to the Lamb because Israel itself, just like we began in Zechariah, if you remember what Leon read for us, God said that he was going to pour out his spirit on Israel so that they would look on their own Messiah, so that they would weep over him the way a mother weeps over her only child. That is the promise of God bringing Israel ultimately to their Messiah, to Christ, and then through Christ, He's going to do all the things that God ever said he was going to do for Israel. Does that make sense? Yes. So the last thing that is said about them is that there is no lie that is found in their mouth and they are blameless. Yeah, if you're chosen from God and then established on the planet as witnesses to go out and proclaim Christ to your brethren Israel, yeah, telling the truth would be the way to go. I mean, they themselves have got to be astounded by what they're learning. God has opened their minds and opened their hearts to recognize Christ and then talk about blessing upon blessing. Everywhere Christ goes, they go. And they themselves are just proof that God is going to keep all the promises that he's made in the Old Testament of regathering and reestablishing Israel and giving them the kingdom that will never fade away.
Those promises are established by the fact that Jesus is on Mount Zion and that he has already saved the first fruits of Israel. Cool, huh? Yeah. Yes. Instead of an amen there, I went with cool, huh? <laughs> it's amazing to me how much the Bible all ties together. I have often said that if I didn't worship the God of this Bible, I'd have to worship the men who figured out how to write it. Because over the course of a couple thousand years, they all end up saying the exact same thing, and all the puzzle pieces all fit together so marvelously well, and the end result of it is the book of Revelation. And there's nothing in the book of Revelation. I hope you've seen this so far. We're 14 chapters in now. There's nothing in the book of Revelation that's any different from the whole rest of the Bible. And the better you know the whole rest of the Bible, the more Revelation just makes sense to you. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.